listeners, one and all, welcome to Regency Rumours, the podcast where a British-American couple recap and discuss Bridgerton, the Regency Netflix show. I'm Jordan. And I'm Kayla. And the nominations for the Golden Globes came out and Bridgerton wasn't on the list. I may get some, some hate for this, but I'm not convinced a show like Bridgerton needs to be uh, nominated for something like Golden Globes compared to all the other kind of amazing shows that we've had out in 2020. I mean... Are you trying to say that Bridgerton isn't amazing? Bridgerton is great. I don't know whether or not it's awards worthy. What I will say is is that it's award worthy for its costuming. I mean, without a doubt, I think. But I don't know. I... I mean, at the end of the day, it's just some award show. It's decided by a body of people in the industry. It it definitely doesn't represent society as a whole and, and their feelings about film and television. But it's still something that, that's taken, you know, quite seriously in the entertainment world. And so on the one hand to me, it's crazy that a show like Bridgerton that's gotten wild success, like way over the top, has had zero nominations, even against smaller shows, many of them who I don't really think are known by the the general population like like Bridgerton would be. But on the other hand, I do feel like Bridgerton isn't necessarily one of those hard-hitting shows that we normally see nominated. I guess in the same way it doesn't it, that doesn't really matter. You know, there's there's a comedy genre, like there's a drama genre. I don't know. I I have a hard time kind of feeling as if Bridgerton is kind of top award worthy, even though I really, really loved it. So please, please don't come at, at us, listeners. Um, but yeah, it it also came out later in, in the year. So I've got no idea if that's a factor as well. It came out literally at the end of the year, whereas uh, other shows like The Queen's Gambit came way earlier and probably gave people time to, to judge and put nominations in. So I, I don't know. But what do you what do you feel? Do you feel like... Bridgerton is award worthy. Um, as much as I kind of gave you a bit of shade there, <laughs> I think it's a hard question because it's hard to compare it to something like The Queen's Gambit or The Mandalorian or Ozark in terms of like the cinematic shots and the aesthetic, uh, the usual award chaser type look of a show. Right? You you know you can watch The Mandalorian and go ah there you go they've dis- they've put some actual thought into the cinematography and how it's going to look and the kind of the end product whereas Bridgerton it's just it's kind of it's fun it's about like the characters and things it's not about looking perfect we've already talked about how there's that scene in the poor part of London quote unquote where you know the color was all weird compared to the next scene and to me that's not award worthy if you do something that weird in in an episode I mean the Crown was nominated, so maybe it wasn't the the genre that there was the cause, um, but more the way that it approached the genre. So yeah, maybe it wasn't its genre, but the way it approached the genre still. I mean, it was lighthearted, it didn't take itself too seriously, that kind of a thing. So when you think about television awards or kind of Hollywood awards in general, you always have to think of whether something fits the mold of what the awards were kind of looking for. And I don't really think that Bridgerton hits it, but I do think that Bridgerton could win awards. It's just whether that, like they'd give it the opportunity. You know, there are there are things that Bridgerton does really well, and obviously because it had millions of households watching it, 
whereas some of these other shows won't. But it's what you've got to ask yourself: what is what is this award show kind of measuring? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, though, it's like it's different people's opinions, right? And you know, some some people are going to think that some shows are brilliant and other people's aren't. I mean, we just had a friend earlier today make a joke about how the Big Bang Theory was trash, and you love Big Bang Theory. I'm not such a huge fan. But, I mean, it, it got loads of awards back when it was out. And so, well, you know, I mean, a lot of that is just different people's opinions and how it comes across. So I think, you know, do I think the general population is going to think that Bridgerton is hard-hitting in a way that, like, Shonda's other stuff, such as Grey's Anatomy, is hard-hitting? No, I don't, I don't think that people are going to probably be nominated for Bridgerton in the same way that people were nominated, you know, for gruesome scenes in Grey's Anatomy. But Wait, you, you never were, know. People were nominated for Grey's Anatomy? Of course. Absolutely. Really? For soap opera? It's not a soap opera. Grey's Anatomy is not a soap opera. It's a, it's a drama series on ABC. Have you ever seen Grey's Anatomy? Yeah, I watched like 13 seasons of it back when I was in college. But um... That's not a soap opera. Really? I thought no. it was like it was like that. What do they get Joey to go on on Friends? That's a soap opera, but a soap opera is something that comes out every day. And there's a lot more writing and work that goes <laughs> into Grey's Anatomy than. I mean, okay, what goes fair into enough. I mean, it's been operas. it's been a very long time since I've watched it. Um, but also, like, I mean, in terms of the Big Bang Theory, <laughs> it's one of those kind of guilty pleasures type thing where I watch it because it's easy to have on in the background. But it, I wouldn't say that I love it. I mean, there's, it, there's huge flaws for it. But then again, that won awards, right? Or they won so, awards within it. Yeah. To to me, if there's if it, there's other shows, and and that was what I was gonna come to. I I think like Emily in Paris, which is that guilty pleasure show that I watched earlier this year, that got nominated for Golden Globes. So if Emily in Paris got nominated, then Bridgerton could have been nominated because there was a lot of good performances in, in Bridgerton. There was a lot of like solid, strong performances. Was it lighthearted? You know, was it not a hard hitting historical drama? Yes. But at the same time, I think if, if other things that are light and meant to be about romance can be nominated, then why can't Bridgerton? So I don't know. But I, I do think in a lot of ways that Bridgerton can be put in this category with, with Emily in Paris, um, which they're now calling ambient TV. It's the type of show where it's still easy to browse on your phone or clean your kitchen or fold your laundry while you're watching. And you can still kind of like follow the general plot without getting too lost. Whereas other shows that have come out this year, like Queen's Gambit, they require you to kind of sit down, engage fully in the plot. Otherwise, you miss so much. Not only with the plot, but also visually. So, like, if, if you're doing other things with something like Queen's Gambit when, you know, you're you're watching her play the games and stuff, it's, I think it is different than, than Bridgerton. Although, I you know, I would argue maybe you would lose some in Bridgerton as well. But I don't necessarily think that Bridgerton shouldn't have got costume awards, like I was saying, maybe production awards, which, like I said, the costumes were out of this world. Um, some of the performances were great. I don't know. I'm just, I'm confused. I don't know how I feel. I'm not trying to, to bash Bridgerton because if I didn't love it and love the Regency era and some of the characters, then we wouldn't be doing this podcast. But I guess I do just feel like there are a few other shows that probably could have been nominated more. So please don't hate me, guys. 
yeah, and what I was saying before, I have no idea why Emily in Paris was included. I also don't think that that was a show that should have been on that list compared to other shows that came out in 2020, but I'm I'm not entirely sure how these types of things happen. It feels very Shakespeare in lovish to me, but never mind. Um, for the most part, I think there were a lot of shows and movies that people are simply unfamiliar with because it's 2020 and people didn't end up buying the films at home or... There are like a million subscription services with all these different shows and we can't afford every single one of them during the pandemic and we can't keep up with them. So I think, I don't know, I think award shows are different than they used to be because there's so much choice out there. Maybe, but I think the argument about the streaming services and being too much choice loses some of its oomph when you think about The Mandalorian being on the list when it was on a brand new streaming service and nowhere else. Yeah. People literally signed up. We signed up for Disney Plus. Oh, totally. Because of that show. Yeah. Because you couldn't get it anywhere else. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's I, I think it's definitely a weird one. But in terms of television, we have to move away from... In some ways, we have to move away from the number of people watching. Because... Back when it was all linear television, which is what they call, you know, broadcast television, you can't watch it any other time, then simply having the number of people tuned into that show as opposed to the other shows, you've got a really good gauge of what people like. But now, it's much harder to kind of really gauge that just off numbers, I would say. Yeah. A show could have like a really long tail of people watching it over, spread over time. I mean, if, you, if you're saying that the award is only valuable for the year that it's given and it doesn't kind of it depends on what they i don't i don't really pay much attention to them to be honest i don't know what the golden globes are for <laughs> so it's, it's like, show and television i mean i pay more attention to the oscars i think the oscars is the big deal but oscars is only film so um the golden globes is kind of the chance for tv to also be included in that list so but didn't it have some film and moment. film, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I'm saying the Oscars don't include television. So right. um, it's just kind of a way for shows to be recognized type thing. I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a hard call because I think in some ways back when Downton Abbey was out, there was years that it was getting awards and there was years that it wasn't. And people were saying like, oh, well, sometimes it's really cheesy with Downton Abbey. And it's like, well... Who cares? Some sometimes the writing was good, and sometimes the storylines were good. I mean, to me, I I loved Downton Abbey kind of all the way through for the most part. But I feel like I feel like these sorts of things they can always be kind of political, anyways. And who's to say? So and and not just political, but it's about like the aesthetic of the film or the show or whatever. Mm. And and like I was saying before, there there's a certain look to a, a film or a TV show that's going for an award. You could say something like Dunkirk, the film, is very, like, strategically placing itself as, like, this is an award-worthy film. Yeah. Um, And you could say the same about Downton Abbey, I would say. Some of the shots that they had and... Like, yeah, yeah. And just the cinematography as a whole, whereas I don't think they paid as much attention to cinematography in Bridgerton. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. We could go round and round in circles. Oh, yeah. I do remember... Um, after I'd made notes about this episode, I do remember seeing that Roger Jean Page, he got 
a SAG or he got nominated for a SAG award for Bridgerton. A SAG. Yes. Don't ask me what that is because I've completely forgotten. But there's a is lot it of the people... Screen Actors. Guild? Yes, that's it. Duh, Kayla. Yes, he got nominated for that. So. Okay. So cool. that being said, you know, um, his performance was was great. Do do I necessarily think it, you know, it holds up to others? I don't know. I I think we didn't watch a ton of relevant television this year anyways if i really think about what we watch it's my mind is kind of bridgerton and mandalorian that's pretty much it in, yeah, I mean, in terms of the major tv show yeah we didn't finish queen's gambit um that was your fault what else was on the list i don't remember we'd have to go back um oh we've got a list here <laughs> <laughs> so some of the other period are historical dramas that were nom nominated either in film or tv we've got the queen's gambit emma mank ma rainey's black bottom hamilton the personal history of david copperfield the crown and the great and we hope we're not missing any there so out of that list we've seen emma the queen's gambit some of it and that's it for me I've seen Hamilton, The Personal History of David Copperfield, and I just started The Great last night, and I was watching it and going, I feel like I've missed so much of this. I don't know what's happening. And then I realized I literally watched the first season finale as my first episode ever. Like, I got who the characters were, and I was like, oh, she's having an affair with him, and he's having an affair with this other girl, and like, I got it. But I'm sitting here thinking, oh, this is the very beginning of this series. This is... This is very like gruesome for the beginning of this series, not realizing that it was the end of the series. Oh dear. So I'm gonna have to go back because I feel like that'll give me a different opinion of it. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really love it if you could subscribe to Regency Rumors on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean a lot to us and it would help the podcast become more visible. We'd also be super grateful if you'd leave us a review. This would help to know how you're enjoying the podcast and what kind of things that you're enjoying talking us talking about. So it is time for the recap. We're at episode five called The Duke and I, which is the title of the first book in the Bridgerton series. I saw an article in Vulture that called it License to Bed. And originally I thought that's what the title was in the episode, which I thought was funny. Um, but no, I'm, I'm glad it's the, the Duke and I. And though this episode is where things get saucy, it gets a little saucy. <clears throat> So it is time for the recap. We're at episode five called The Duke and I, which is the title of the first book in the Bridgerton series. I saw an article in Vulture that called the episode License to Bed and originally thought that was the title to the episode, which I thought was funny. Uh, but no, I am glad it is The Duke and I, though this episode is where things do start to get a bit saucy. Oh, dear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So from the start of the episode, we see Daphne stripping off her clothing. She changes back into what appears to be a nightgown, pretending to get back in bed as if nothing has happened from the duel. Her lady's maid comes in, wakes her up, and she yawns blissfully, as if she didn't just stop a duel between Anthony and Simon occurring. She comes downstairs to find her mother, who feels unwell. Daphne exclaims that she is engaged to the Duke. Violet seems overjoyed with this news, though she can tell that Daphne seems off. 
It is not as if she's given the news with any sort of enthusiasm. Violet says, I knew there was something between you two, ruse or not. Daphne tells her mother that she wishes they could marry sooner. Clearly, something is up. Violet is so clever, though, she doesn't need to know anymore. She knows something has happened between the two of them, but she'll fix it. She's such a boss. She announces that the wedding will be planned in three days. Oh my gosh, three days. And this fades into the opening scene. So I have a qualm here. Uh, so when, when Daphne unzips her boots, some very skillful sleuths online were able to identify them as very modern boots with a zipper. So I don't know why they did that. It was so obvious. Um, I think a YouTuber pointed it out. I'll have to remember who it is. But I went back and I watched the scene myself. And it was like any boots that you could buy at Payless or BOGO Shoes with like a zipper up the side. I know they haven't been completely period correct, obviously, but this feels like so out of left field to me. It just seems really lazy. Like, why would you go and buy modern shoes for a scene like this and then film them that close up? It was just weird. I love Violet's face when she hears that Daphne is engaged to the Duke. It's like she's got peace about it and peace about her daughter's life now where she didn't about the prince. She's so clever, though. She was like, I get you. I was young once. I'll just sort it out. I do think three days is crazy to actually plan a wedding and a reception. Like, it's one thing if you elope, but my goodness, three days to, like, plan a whole wedding and a reception. Ours was planned in, like, three months, and that was quick to me. So I feel like it's amazing that they were able to get that done. Yeah, I mean, three days is a little crazy to me, too. But it's really funny about the boots. I did not notice. Um, it's such an easy thing to get wrong. You'd have thought that somebody would have noticed as they were filming. I hang on a minute. Zip. Hmm. <laughs> right? It even had like kind of that modern rubber that you see on, on boots oh, right. nowadays, like at the bottom. And I'm like, that's so obvious. Why would you do that? But it's just a small minor thing and it doesn't really matter. But it's like, it's one of those things that's been happening a lot because I think they're just trying to rush and get stuff out nowadays, you know, with like Game of Thrones and the Starbucks cup and you remember they, they oh, accidentally left yeah. a Starbucks cup in Game of Thrones. And I, oh, and there was a water bottle in another show. And I can't remember what it, what show it was, but they accidentally left a, a water bottle in a historical show. And I think they're just rushing to get these things out that, that uh, whoever's editing it just isn't able to kind of have time to have an eye over it and go, oh, there's a Starbucks cup in the or, middle of this feast. <laughs> yeah, or they just go... Eh, nobody will notice that. Yeah. And to be fair, I've never noticed any of them on screen. I've I've had no. to see us. I've had to see a screenshot later. Yeah, yeah, totally. So like the Game of Thrones stuff. So yeah, because I mean, you know, there's psychology to where we look when we first look at a, a scene or something, and, and or, or or even just a picture. Yeah. So you you don't look at what they've got in their hands behind their back if they're all stood in a crowd. Which yeah, is where the true. cup was. Just funny. Just little things here and there. Lady Whistledown begins narrating again. She's here to give us the lowdown. She says with confidence, It is time to announce the news others questioned, but I never doubted. We're assuming this is to announce Simon and Daphne's engagement, but we do see the Queen walking down a hall planning the wedding of the Prince and Daphne. So clearly she doesn't know. An aide 
rushes to give her Whistledown's paper, and in it Lady Whistledown has announced that Daphne is engaged to the Duke of Hastings. At that very moment, her nephew walks in, who also clearly doesn't know. Over at the Bridgertons, Eloise and Daphne are arguing. Daphne says to Eloise that she will soon find out what love feels like next season when she is out. Eloise does not like the sound of this. Daphne says, You do know that I'm setting the standard for your future matches. You should be grateful. Okay, then. Eloise replies, The only thing I'm grateful for is that I'm not you, nor will I ever be. Not sure what the period correct treatment is for burns, but Daphne needs a doctor. Stat. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Did you <laughs> add that? I did add that. Oh, beautiful. Ha ha ha. <laughs> okay, originally you said something like burn, and I decided that I didn't want to go burn. <laughs> no, it's great. Prince Friedrich turns up at the Bridgertons. He wants to clear the air. From start to finish, he has been a gentleman and seems like a stand-up guy in this kind of feeling sorry for him. Daphne, in a sense, says that it's not you, it's me. I found out I was in love with the Duke, and there's just nothing I can do about it, basically. Yeah, nothing at all. He does congratulate her and move on. Poor fellow. During another promenade session, it seems as if Daphne, Lady Danbury, Violet, and the Duke are supposed to meet up. But he is late, and looking rather dishevelled. Violet congratulates him and says, Welcome to the family. Lady Danbury can tell he's been drinking, and she is not happy with him. I love that someone calls him out on his immature behaviour sometimes, and she is the perfect person to do it. They all start promenading, and Daphne and Simon can't seem to even talk to each other. To the outside world, they look like they'll be a perfect match, but clearly this is a messed up situation. She grabs his hand and he pulls away. Is he joking? So... I love Lady Whistledown's confidence here. She's assuring her audience that she is on top of everything. She's got the 411 and she is the source people should be coming to for their London news. Whether or whether or not she really knew all of this or where she got her sources, I've got no idea. But I just think it's fun that she claims to pretty much know everything, so don't test her. Um, in regards to Simon... I mean, I feel like if I was in that situation and all that had happened with Prince Friedrich and how much of a gentleman he was, how kind he was and everything, and then right after that, Simon shows up on this promenade, drunk and distant, and won't even put my hand on his arm. Oh my gosh, I would think in that moment, I've made the wrong choice. Like, I get it. It's this whole bad boy thing where the safe bet is not the attractive one dysfunctional hot dude is what you want but I feel like that that's what people's college years are for um if you need that sort of thing like you don't marry that guy right like Daphne and Simon clearly have a strong connection with one another so I do get it it wouldn't have mattered if the prince was the best person who ever walked this earth and she would still want Simon. But from a standpoint of like needing a secure future, wanting to find standing in society for your family and for your sister's prospects, like Daphne was saying, you would maybe be kicking yourself a little bit in this moment. If I was in that situation, I would definitely think for a second, like, oh, I have messed up. Like, what have I done? I've let my passions and my lust dictate my future now and then I'm stuck with this dude that can't even show up sober to promenade with me and my mother like oh my gosh um I 
would just think like he's got issues that I wasn't aware of and I'd be worried. Two seconds ago, I've just let down this sweet prince who has all these resources in the world and titles and all these things. And now I've got a promenade with this drunk dude that won't even hold my hand as his fiance. I definitely think I'd go through a period of time where I really wish that kiss didn't happen because I, w I would be second guessing my whole relationship with him. I'd be like, oh gosh, is this the way he's going to be when every single problem comes up? Like, is he just going to kind of use drinking as a way to, to deal with it? Or is he not going to be communicative? Like, I just feel like as a young woman who she clearly is so naive and, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit later. But for someone that knows so little of the world, I would just be so afraid. I'd be thinking, oh gosh, what am I in for? Yeah. I mean, there's only one reason he turned up drunk and that's you know, trying to wipe away a decision that he didn't want to make. Unfortunately, it's a decision that impacts on Daphne and the Bridgertons in general, so there's, like, no sympathy for the man. Like, stop acting out. Yeah. Um, But, you know, to talk about the naivety for a second, she's probably here not even worldly enough to think, oh, he's running from his problems by turning to drink. Oh, maybe you're right. Because, maybe she doesn't know. Because it like it, it doesn't seem that we get that spark of like recognition of something like a deeper problem or anything. She's just concerned. We do from her mother and from Lady Danvers, oh, though. Yeah, okay, but but not from You're right. Daphne. I didn't even think about that. She's a little bit like doe-eyed more than anything. But you can definitely see it. Like her mom is trying to be like, okay, what's going on? Like you can kind of see that from uh, Lady Bridgerton. But Lady D Danbury... Her face, she like grits her teeth. And you you know a woman is annoyed with a man if she grits her teeth. And she like grits her teeth at him like, you know, figure yourself out. So she knows what's, I don't, she doesn't know what's going on with him, but she knows something's up with him. And then Daphne's mom, I'm sure is kind of like, uh-oh, what's going on? But you're right. I didn't even think about that. Maybe maybe Daphne was is doesn't know enough about the world to even know that that's a concern. Anthony is outside Madame Delacroix's house, wanting to see Sienna. He's really starting to become a pest. Delacroix says to close the door, tries to close the door on him, but he wants to assure Sienna that he's going to take care of her, even though he didn't die, which is a bit of a weird concept. <laughs> but if you remember back to the duel, he said that if he succeeded in the duel, they'd be able to run away together. Um, and if, well, I mean, that was that was basically the only option that was good for Sienna. But anyway. But he did He did say that he'd also take care of her if anything happened. Right. Yeah. Delacroix tells him that Sienna is gone. She does not need your money, nor anything else from you, for that matter. He wants to know where Sienna is, but she refuses to tell him. So, time to move on. Over at the Featheringtons, Portia Featherington informs her husband that she is no longer allowed to buy dresses until his debt is paid. He tells her that they should just wear all the same dresses again. Practical, and yet something that's just not done in high society. Colin Bridgerton shows up to meet Marina, who seems overjoyed, even a bit too overjoyed. Penelope tries to obstruct Marina's plans, sabotaging their conversations with negative things about Marina. Penelope tries to tell her mother that this is not a good match. Colin is supposed to be years from thinking of marriage, and Portia says nothing. It seems as if whatever works is good for her. Over at the bustling Bridgertons, everything is being prepared for a quick wedding. Just like a hurried downstairs kitchen in Downton Abbey, everything is a buzz for the big day. Loads of food being made everywhere. Daphne and her mother preparing her wedding gown at Madame de la Croix. In walks none other than you-know-who, Cressida. 
The two have a private moment to chat. Cressida says, you and the Duke are fond of a midnight stroll. She tells Daphne that she was only flirting with the prince to catch the Duke's attention and then lured him into the gardens to trap him into marriage. Wow. Daphne gives as good as she gets, however, and says that in a few days she's going to be a duchess and Cressida will be a nobody and that she can either be a duchess's friend or her enemy. Mic drop. Cressida isn't convinced, however, and she doesn't know whether Daphne will be able to drag her down, drag him down the aisle at all. So going back to the scene at the the Featheringtons, I love Penelope so much. I love this character. I think in part because Nicola Coughlin is one of the first plus size. Sorry, who? Did we not say it was Coughlin? Nicola. Yeah. Nicola. Ni- <laughs> Nicola Coughlin. Nicola Coughlin. Nicola. <laughs> Sometimes my Southern comes out. I'm sorry. Um, Nicola Coughlin is one of the first plus side leads in. It's a- probably Coughlin. I don't know. Anyways, I love her. We will make sure to know her last name next time. I promise. Um, but she's one of the first plus-size leads in a period drama. And Penelope is so sweet and endearing. I just love this character, and I want her to get with the guy that she wants, and I want her to feel beautiful and validated and confident. So, like, I think out of anyone, I'm rooting for her because I feel like I identify with her. But here I am just so annoyed at her actions. There's one thing in her being bummed about this, even being concerned about what Marina is doing to Colin. Maybe even figuring out a way of letting Colin know all this. But these petty pursuits of putting Marina down and being sneaky with her mom, I hate it. I'm just so disappointed. I hate how she's been going about it and making me feel like she's not really doing all of this for Colin's benefit. But because he likes Marina and not her, it's just so childish. So I think that's frustrating. I thought better of her. We were rooting for you, Penelope. We were all rooting for you. You get that reference? Nope. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) In terms of Anthony, now that we know he's going to be the focus of season two, I can't decide if he and Sienna will have a storyline in the next season. There's something about it that makes me feel like they won't. I don't know what it was. Like, I just can tell they care about each other, but I don't know that they're, like, madly in love with each other. It feels like that they were in this toxic codependent relationship with each other and reliant on needing the distraction that the other one can bring so i just feel like they'll abandon this storyline for some reason next season but i'm not sure i've started reading the second book no spoilers i have also heard that the second season may or may not um diverge from the book so we can never know really what the second season is going to look like obviously but i don't know i just have a feeling I'm not so sure that they can abandon it because if they do, then everyone will be asking where on earth has Sienna gone to? So like, no, they will have to address it somehow in some way. I think it will make for an interesting subplot anyway if he's still sneaking off to see her when he's also trying to find a wife. Yeah. Um, But it would totally make us uh, think of him as a bit of an ass. Um, But there we are. It will make for an interesting show or season rather. In terms of a show like this, where it's like, oh, once you get with this person, they are your person. Do you think that they're a match and will end up together in the end, in your opinion? Who, Sienna and Anthony? No. Yeah, I don't either. I I don't see them getting around the pressures of society. No. He is the, um, the Viscount. 
I think the only way that would happen, and that does happen in some period dramas, um, it, for example, kind of Jane Eyre, that, that happens a little bit, where the power dynamic changes a little bit. Um, towards the end of, of Jane Eyre, she finds out that she's a bit of an heiress. She gets a fortune that comes to her. Okay, yeah, but that would be such a cliche that they can't do it in this. Yeah, well, I mean, it's Bridgerton, though. <laughs> Maybe they can. I don't know. No, no. You don't think so? I, I think that okay. would be it. Would be cheap, and it would ruin everything that had happened this season between them. Maybe, maybe you're right. But I, I, I do. In some ways, I do think it would be interesting to see her in a light where she had money and she had the means to reject him and really reject him in a way that was public. And now she had a title and people had to respect her and and those sorts of things. I, I feel like that would be interesting. But you're right; it would be cliched. So. I could see the way that that would happen is if she got a very rich patron um, or if she married a rich old guy who had a higher title than him. Yeah. Some some old guy takes a real liking to her and says, look, I'll marry you. I've got no heir, so I might as well try and pass it on or whatever. And then she becomes the widower duchess or something. Yeah. And then the dynamic would be different. But The uh, dowager duchess, sorry. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, I don't... I don't know. I don't see that kind of happening. I think he'll have a different love story and he'll fall in love with someone different because it does seem like they've had a bit of a toxic relationship. So. Okay, but so here's prediction time. Okay. It would need to be a woman who is a bit more kind of forceful. Ironically, a little bit more like Eloise than a Daphne type, I guess. I, I agree with you. Right? I think it would need to be someone who's strong-willed, doesn't need him has her own thing going on. She's like, I'm rich on my own. I don't really need you. And he will be interested in who she is as a person and not just like, hey, I need to come over for a shag. I think, though, that because of who he is, she will need to be good looking. Well, yes. I think he's very vain. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. So, at the palace, the queen is deep into Whistledown, Whistledown's paper. How could this have happened? Her nephew informs her that he is leaving for Prussia, but Charlotte wants him to fight for Daphne. Not a clue why, but he leaves regardless. Over at a church that we presume is the one that Simon and Daphne will get married in, Anthony and Simon discuss Daphne's dowry, which Simon does not wish to accept. He says, I do not need to be paid to marry Daphne. He thinks it is insulting. He tells Anthony that he can place her money in a trust for her. How very modern of him. Even if it wouldn't have necessarily been period correct. He tells Anthony that he of course plans on supporting her. Anthony apologizes to Simon for shooting at him. What a weird conversation that was. The Archbishop turns up to grant their marriage license, but they are told that instead it has been denied. He won't do a quick wedding, which is no good for all involved because weeks would allow Cressida to spread gossip around. It must be quick. It seems the queen has had a hand in all of this. They'll have to appeal to her if they want to get married. She's taken Daphne's rejection of the prince to heart. Daphne and Simon will have to appeal to the queen personally and will have to be honest, Lady Danbury tells them. Across town, Benedict shows up to a party of Sir Granville's and runs into Lady Delacroix. Madam. Oh, Madam Delacroix. It seems that the two have hit it off and so have like a bunch of other people at this party. Oh my. 
So late at night, Will finds Simon on the street corner drunk and singing. He is not taking his engagement well. He tells Will that he has let his feelings get the better of him, and now Daphne has to fight for a wedding that she doesn't even want. It seems both of them think the other doesn't want this, when secretly they kind of both do. Oh, what a thrill. (laughs) (laughs) Over at the Featheringtons, Portia tells Marina she is to cut Colin Bridgerton. He is too young to get married, and it seems as if Portia has listened to her daughter's concerns. She wants her to marry Lord Rutledge, the gross old dude. We have finally figured out his name. Marina says she will agree to marry gross old dude if Colin doesn't propose by Saturday. She is planning on trying to get Colin to have sex with her in order to get them married quicker. Portia agrees to this, but Penelope is listening outside and she seems devastated. What a ride. So I I feel like one thing we can learn from this show is like no one is perfect on it. But it just seems like everyone has crappy things about them. I was talking about being disappointed in Penelope before, but I also just feel feel annoyed over Marina and Portia as well. It's so manipulative. I feel so sorry for Marina. I do, but this is so wrong. Her trying to seduce Colin. Could you imagine if the roles were reversed and two men were speaking about a woman like that? Like, oh, I'll just coerce her into sex to smear her reputation, and then she'll have to marry me. It would be so, like, it would be seen as super bad. Where I feel like with this, it's just kind of like, oh, poor young Colin, but Marina has got to do what she's got to do. Like, it's just not fair, and it feels super icky. I'm not crazy about Marina, and certainly not Portia in this particular episode, but they just seem like bad people to me. I don't know, like, I, I... feel for her circumstances I get it I understand but it's this is super icky talking about trying to like coerce somebody into something simply so that you can trap them into marriage it's so wrong and the annoying part about it is that um, the actress for Marina has a more common accent she's from the country and so it's as if like those who aren't proper London high society will do things like this. Although Portia is doing this kind of thing as well. I think it's it's kind of like it's trying to show us the quote-unquote realities of the situation and the things that people would do to kind of get by in, in Regency uh, London, which, you know, maybe they did, but do, I, we don't have to enjoy it. <laughs> I think it is kind of annoying that... The person they've chose for that to happen to is the poorest person on the show. Right. So I do think that's quite annoying because it's like, oh, well, if we'd have seen one of the Featherington girls themselves go through something like this, then we'd go, oh, well, you know, these upper class, like some of them can be ruthless. But now it's kind of like, oh, well, the country girl, she can be ruthless and in order to save their reputation, then the upper class people, well, they have to go along yeah, but with it. Not only that, is that they're portraying it as she's poor, she's got no standing, therefore she has to do this. This is her only option. Yeah. Do you know, it's, it's yeah. like they're, they're not allowing her do it properly. I, I mean, yeah, I know. There's a whole ton of things there, but never mind. Okay. It's, so it's tough. I, I am torn over Marina and kind of how she acts about it, really, because 
she is there to kind of show the girls, both the Bridgertons and Featheringtons, what it's like in the real world, because they're all super sheltered. But on the other hand, like I said, she's representing the country lords and ladies who are often depicted as backwards and like parochial compared to the lords and ladies that go to London for the season, you know? So, yeah, I, I definitely don't like the fact that she's planning to deceive Colin. It would be one of those it takes two to tango situations. Uh, if he goes along with it, then it's as much his fault as it is hers. But the real problem is obviously that she's deceiving him. Yeah, that she like. <laughs> Our dog is having a hard time getting comfortable. See, yeah, you might you, you might okay? hear that in the background. So the real problem is that she's deceiving him into thinking that she likes him at all because he's her own age, good looking in general, and she's just like, yes, he'll do better than the gross old dude, so I'm in. Um, but because maybe she does like him physically, but she doesn't know him at all. So she, like, Marina is using her superior good looks to manipulate, and that's never a good thing to see. No. Because, again, she that th this is supposedly her only tool. Yeah. And so it just, it just reeks of, like, 30, 40, 50 years ago of this is what we think women are capable of. Yeah, and, and the, uh, the fact that it's like, oh, it, it's the country people that have to do this sort of thing. In a lot of ways, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that they are going to show different parts of life in the UK and not just the upper class. In the, I don't think in, they're going to. No. I, I really right. don't. Because, right. you know, it's not that kind of thing. They're not trying to show the differences, really. No. They are slightly with, like, Sienna and Madame Delacroix, but, like, it's not quite there. They're just side characters who are involved with high society. So... We're not really going to see how no, I the, think they live. In that way, properly. it is a contrast to, to Austin because all of Austin's leads, they either can come from poor circumstances or they're kind of, they're not middle class in the way that you, it's middle class in the way of I would think of it, I guess, um, in terms of like they, some of them are born on estates or their parents have had money but they are not the upper echelon. Like, they are not like, oh, we went to this event and the prince was there. I think in in Persuasion, they show up to a concert and a baroness is there. And everyone is like, ooh, the baroness is here. And, like, that shows you. The baroness is, like, what, the lowest on, on the title? Totem? Uh, so Sort of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of. So it, it shows you that, like, it's people that are kind of upper class that, that can have estates and things but they are not people who are going to court you know every weekend or or that have these massive massive estates with huge titles and viscounts and things and so this is kind of another world compared to some of austin's works and so yeah i i think it does kind of show an uh what am i trying to say a, a biased side of life i guess bias is not a no it, it's like an idealized yeah, yeah yeah i mean because it's obviously we've talked about this before it's an american-made show yeah which means that it's not gonna have the british se sensitivity to class issues that a british show would you know downton abbey very clearly understands the class issues between upper and lower house um it was all throughout that show particularly when we get to the um the things with the irish right whereas bridgerton is it's got none of that 
it doesn't understand any of that. That's why we went to the poor part of London and we saw them all with rats on sticks. I mean, I, I think the next episode, it will give us a tiny, tiny glimpse of, is it the dichotomy of the estate owner and the people who live on the estate? We'll see that a little bit. But really, it's even an idealized version of that. It's yeah, a very but, pretty yeah. version of that. So. And, but again, we'll, we'll talk about this more in the next episode. Yeah. But that is a, a, a stick to beat us over the head with Daphne's naivety. Yeah. That's all that's for. Yeah, you're right. Unfortunately. Anywho, so back to the recap. The queen walks into a dining room where the king is eating and it seems as if he's lucid for once this is the first time we've seen him right yeah yeah the couple share some memories and it's as if everything is back to normal for a bit he mentions someone named emily that we can clearly tell is dead by the queen's reaction she tells him this but it upsets him and he's confused it seems as if he's not lucid as lucid as she had hoped he accuses her of killing his child and is restrained as the queen leaves the room. It's late at night and Daphne can't sleep, so she goes into the garden and walks around. Her lady's maid comes up to her and they get to chatting. She tells her that the duke cannot have children. It's the only person that she's opened up, opened up about this. It's clear that she must trust her if she tells her this kind of information. The maid tells her that she has an aunt who lives with her husband and cannot have children, but they are still quite happy. Daphne soon dismisses her. The familiarity between the two of them is gone in a puff. The Duke has awoken from his drunken stupor at Will's modest abode. Though Will has less than him, he and his wife and children seem happy, and we can see that this is something new for the Duke to witness. The next day, the Duke, Daphne, Lady Danbury and Violet show up in front of the Queen to plead their case. Daphne exclaims it was love at first sight. Simon says it was not. He says that at first the two of them did not get on. They had a lot of assumptions about one another. Very pride and prejudice there. <laughs> Eventually, a friendship grew between them. He tells the Queen the true story of what happened between them, saying that it somehow turned into love. He tells the queen that it took the prince coming along for him to see that he didn't want Daphne to just be his friend. He wanted her to be his wife. As he is saying how much Daphne means to him, Daphne is watching him with a concerned look on her face. Does he really mean this or is this just another part of the ruse? So frustrating. This is all getting so complicated. Lady Bridgerton and Lady Danbury are holding each other behind the pair. I think this is really cute. Whatever he's done, it's worked. The queen respects his acknowledgement of friendship being the best foundation for a marriage. She gives Daphne the choice. Do you wish to marry the man? And then we cut to the wedding. So I think one of the, the really nice things about this scene is we opened on the queen and the king coming together and, and having a conversation. And we do see in that very short scene that she very very deeply cares for that man she just doesn't know how to respond to him and his illness and it's really sad you know the performance here fantastic just like you know the emotions running through her face as she's walking out of the room and then we get to this point and you know if if the queen had done a sudden 180 on this after his little speech and we hadn't seen the scene prior 
we'd have all been very confused. So again, kind of a, a masterful way of setting up a later scene. Um, I just think it's a really good thing. I think I don't know that much about Queen Charlotte, so I don't want to speak on that. But what I think I like about this version of Queen Charlotte is like, yeah, obviously she's gossipy and things, but she doesn't seem like someone who is spiteful against her husband. It it just doesn't come across that way. And I, I kind of like that. It's not as if she's going, oh, where's that dumb husband of mine? Like, it seems like she, she does have some sort of... Well, they had a basis of friendship before they yeah, got married. Yeah, and, sh and she has some sort of kind of warmth for her husband and care for him. And I think she, she feels bad for him in his condition. And it doesn't seem like she's kind of a, a vengeful queen that's just kind of like, oh, oh my no. husband should be locked away. And I think that's nice. I, I prefer yeah, that rather exactly. than the opposite. Because in a, a lot of shows, the queen would have become um malevolent yeah and, and she would have taken this power and been like right i'm gonna do what i want because my husband is indisposed do you yeah. know what i mean where she isn't she's just she's holding parties she's gossiping about who's gonna fall in love and get married it's pretty benign all things considered right so i thought i'd talk a little bit here about audiences with the monarch or the queen in particular it's not very simple to find out about audiences with british monarchs other than queen elizabeth ii however uh, with a quick search that I was able to do anyway. And I honestly don't know where to look to find out more about period correct specifics. So if any of our listeners do know and could point us in the direction of a, a book or even someone to speak to, that would be great. That'd be great. However, I can tell you that Her Majesty grants audiences regularly as part of her working week. An audience is typically 20 minutes long and she will shake the hand of whom she's meeting with. All ambassadors and high commissioners which are ambassadors but from a commonwealth country, will get a meeting shortly after they enter their post. And there are various other people that she will meet with, poet laureates, masters of musics, um, political and religious leaders, for example. The conversations that occur in an audience with the Queen are entirely private, and they are never transcribed or recorded. As there are more than 170 diplomats in the UK at any one time, there are many chances for the Queen to have an audience, and she also entertains a weekly meeting with her Prime Minister, and has done throughout her entire reign. Still now, at this age? Yes, that's no what they say. No way! So her and Boris meet up every, yes. every week? Yeah. She's such a boss. Um, apparently it's on a Wednesday. Interesting, wow. And so she'll do that in her audience rooms, um, whereas certain diplomats or religious leaders and things may be at her um private residences and so these audience generally haven't changed by the way since the victorian era which is obviously slightly later than the bridgerton series things will have been different but diplomats are typically collected from their embassy or residence in a state landau which is a ceremonial horse-drawn carriage and travel through the streets of london led by a second carriage which the marshal of the diplomatic corps will travel in so the ambassador or high commissioner in question will often bring members of their family to this special occasion as well. Audiences generally take place in state or semi-state rooms at Buckingham Palace, though, like I said, occasionally they'll happen in the private apartments of the Queen. So the ambassador or high commissioner and his or her party are announced as they enter the room by the Marshal of the Diplomatic Corps, and the Queen will shake everybody's hands, and then the audience begins. At the start of the audience, diplomats will present their letters of credence for ambassadors or letters of high commission for high commissioners 
also known as their credentials. This is a formal letter from the diplomat's head of state to the Queen, asking her to give credence to the new ambassador or high commissioner. In other words, saying that Her Majesty can trust the new appointment to speak on behalf of his, of his or her country. So yeah, I'm not necessarily sure that this is at all going to be useful for this Regency stuff, folks, and I'm sorry about that. But it is interesting anyway, I think. Um, I think that's really interesting, yeah. So, you know, we talked um, last episode or the episode before, I'm getting a little bit lost here, but um, obviously Her Majesty has had the longest reign of all the British monarchs. And for that entire time, I didn't even know this, but for that entire time, she's been meeting with the Prime Ministers and she... So the Queen is very um, apolitical, i.e. she stays out of political debates. She doesn't have a side. The royals are not allowed to vote um, and all of that kind of a thing. However, she is allowed to give them advice. I imagine that sometimes it has been very strongly worded advice of don't be an idiot and do this, <laughs> do that, the other. Um, so one thing to remember for... Uh, any any listener is that the british government is founded each time we have an election on the permission of the queen the the new prime minister whoever it is who whoever party was uh, voted in in that general election the prime minister will go to the queen and say i have the votes required to form a government may i have your permission and the Queen can technically say no, but I'm pretty sure she never has because it would be political um, suicide to do that. Um, and the the Parliament would come down on the royals hard if they ever tried to to change I think in this day precedent. And age. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Right, today, yeah. they would come down hard and they would try and change the laws and things like that. So, and I think it was probably a lot of the same foundations were there all the way back to 1066, diplomats would obviously immediately get an audience and everyone else would kind of be like, eh, <laughs> you can wait in court and eventually maybe I'll deign to listen to you. Nowadays, there'd be no, there'd be no way. She wouldn't be able to see everyone <laughs> that wanted to see her. And that's a good question that I've just thought of. When was the last time that court was held? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, does it still exist? Maybe it does. Who knows? I don't know if that's the same thing, but she saw debutantes presented to her up into the 50s or 60s, I think, but that, that ended in the 60s, 50s or 60s. So yeah, I think, but... I don't know if that's the same as being yeah, presented at court. at court in the same way in the Regency era that it would have been. So I don't know, but she did she did see debutantes and and things year after year until then. So... I don't know. It would be really interesting to to know that stuff. So I don't think I've ever been within, you know, 50 miles of the Queen. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. No, but you know, you know more than I do. And I think it has been fun. Sometimes we do have royal chat or royal debate, depending on how we normally have the same kind of feelings about the royal family. But there's sometimes we have debates and stuff i really enjoy them they're fun are you are you trying to out me as like a traitor or something you what, what, what's happening no no no, not at all <laughs> not <laughs> no, at I'm all i'm totally kidding i um, just think we enjoy talking about the royal family and i think i like getting your as a an american who's not been like born and raised here i like getting your opinion on stuff and i think 
you can be more well versed on that stuff than than some. So yeah, but then a lot less than others as well. Yeah, well, that's true. But still, I I think we're both a healthy amount of like. Depends on who you speak to. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway. Anyways, back to the recap. So the wedding is a small affair. Only Daphne's immediate family on her side and Will, his wife, and Lady Danbury on the Duke's side. Still, the church is decorated beautifully, and the new couple look lovely. After all this fuss, the two are married super quickly. On to a party with a massive cake. I want that cake. I want all the food. I'm hungry. I'm also hungry. <laughs> I'm very hungry. Um, so Daphne and the Duke are at opposite sides of the room for their reception and keep trying to find each other. Hashtag relatable. Cressida Cowper is there and makes a snide remark. I've got no desire to repeat it. Bye, Felicia. We are done with you. Why is she even there? I would not have her there at my wedding. Rule number one, no negative, unsupportive, or just spectator people at your wedding. Period. End of story. At another part of the room, Penelope is trying to get Marina to pick someone else to marry. Anyone but Colin. He's a good man, Penelope says. Marina replies, should I entrap a bad man? For me to live my life with a man who treats me like a mere beast. Lady Featherington comes up to say Lord Rutledge is no longer available. Oh, he, no. <laughs> yeah. How horrible. How horrible. He's already engaged that quickly. Colin Bridgerton is now her last hope. She decides to lure him into a private room. It's all too much for the poor boy. And he agrees very quickly to marriage with nothing more happening at all. He's just like, let's get married. And that, that was easy. Though he says that they can marry at the end of the season, which is probably months away. She agrees to this for the moment. Doesn't he say something like, I don't want to steal thunder from Daphne, basically? I don't, I don't remember that. I don't know. Okay. No, I might he, have imagined that. No, he, he just wanted to make sure things were above the board. He seems like a good little guy. The queen comes up to Daphne during the reception and tells her that she hopes she's made the right choice but that she will enjoy her wedding night in the very least. Haha, <laughs> we maybe are all thinking that. Okay, moving on. The queen then goes to her sister Eloise and tells her that she wants to know everything she can about Lady Whistledown. Now Eloise is on the case. Not only is she on the case, but she has the backing of the queen. Yeah. Anthony goes to tell Daphne that Simon has refused her dowry. She can use the money as she sees fit, perhaps for her large brood of children one day. This upsets Daphne as she knows Simon has already told her that he cannot have children. She runs upstairs to be alone because it's too overwhelming. So let's talk about Regency weddings and the difference between them then and today. So today, well, pre-COVID, weddings can be big ordeals with wedding venues or churches full of guests. They can have hundreds of people, and we see this as quite typical. In the Regency era, that wasn't really the case, which is why this wedding felt so empty with only Daphne's family and Lady Danbury and Will and his wife in attendance. So, like, it was, what, under, under 10 people? Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. So, COVID's safe in a lot of places <laughs> now nowadays. Um, so, if you... Want more info on Regency Weddings? The Jane Austen Center in Bath has a great blog article on it. I'll provide it 
in the show notes. So apparently royal weddings were still big affairs. So when Princess Charlotte, so that's Queen Charlotte's granddaughter, got married in 1816, it was a big affair. She wore a beautiful gown worth $10,000 pounds, sorry, and expensive jewelry. And hundreds of people lined the streets in London to watch their wedding. Now, is that 10,000 pounds of their money? Yeah. I didn't estimate what that was. They wow. it, they recorded that the, the gown at the time was worth 10,000 pounds. So, you know, whatever the estimate is today, it was it was an expensive gown. Hundreds of thousands at yeah, the least. Yeah, yeah. However, for smaller families, weddings were more simple affairs. It seemed like some people would have their parents there or young bridesmaids to attend them before the wedding. Other people would have the local village come to the event. Some weddings would take place very quickly, and then the couple would head straight to their honeymoon. So it did, it did depend um, on the couple, it seems. But for the most part, weddings were just kind of family events for, for close family and maybe a few friends. Any day of the week would work for weddings, and most of them would take place in the morning, as people would be more serious, apparently, which I suppose when they say that, they mean more sober, and therefore the event will be more serious. So fathers would typically present their daughters at the altar, so that still happens today, um, and wedding rings were exchanged. Couples would have been married from the Book of Common Prayer. In terms of the bride's dress, it seemed that... It was different depending on the bride, though there are several several accounts of women wearing white. It wasn't as big of a thing as it, as it is now, but Jane Austen's niece, Anna, got married in 1814, and her dress was described as a dress of fine white muslin, and over it a soft silk shawl, white shot with primrose, with embossed white satin flowers and a very handsome fringe, and on her head a small cap to match, trimmed with lace. Did you like that? Not really. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. So right after the marriage ceremony, the bride and groom would sign the parish registry book, which was definitive proof that the couple were wed. The marriage certificate was super important for a woman because it was proof that she was married and provided for. If she didn't have this and she couldn't prove that she was a respectable married woman, then she wouldn't be entitled to her husband's support. She could even be arrested for being a prostitute. If she was a widow, she could be denied her inheritance or custody of her kids. So it was some of the most important documents in a woman's life because without it, she couldn't support herself. I, I feel like maybe this is why marriage certificates in the UK are signed during the ceremony today. So it's proof to a wider community than just the couple that the documents have been signed. People have seen the document being signed by the couple. And if the husband, for whatever reason, wants to abandon the wife or say, this is not really my wife and wants to run off with someone else or whatever, there are witnesses that can say, uh, no, 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 we watched you. It's signed. And then the priest, he can come and open the book and say, look right here. You signed this, buddy. So I didn't realize how important it was to a woman basically to have those documents because it was your security. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, a lot of what we do today comes from obviously back then when um, all these kinds of things may have happened. So 
I just want to kind of briefly go back. You mentioned that they would take place um, on the morning as people would be more serious. And then you mentioned that maybe they'd be more sober. So <laughs> one of the laws today, and this is a hard and fast law, is that you cannot have any alcohol present in the room in which you are married. So, for example, if you um, if you get a, a wedding ceremony to take place in you know, a fancy hotel or, or somewhere other than a church, which is very common, and you get the registrar to come out and perform the, the ceremony, there, there are very strict rules that the venue have to adhere to. And, and we know this because we worked in a hotel, a local hotel, for example, but no alcohol is allowed in, in that room. So, so yeah, obviously this is, you know, people can't be drunk when they're getting married because it is a sacred covenant and so we we don't want people making it accidentally, basically. So no Vegas type shenanigans can go on. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so so yeah, um, obviously this is something that we've noticed. There's some slight differences between US and UK weddings. So here in the UK, Kayla and I signed the registry in front of our witnesses, two very good friends of ours. And your witnesses are not allowed to be people that you're related to. Um, but obviously we had other family members in the room with us. So you have to have two witnesses, one who stands for the husband and one who stands for the wife. Um, I think it used to genuinely be, is this person who they say they are? Yes, I can uh, attest that this is that man. Um, and yes, this is that woman and so on and so forth. Um, but today is a little bit more of a formality, but you do still need those two witnesses. So you won't be issued with a marriage license at all if you weren't who you say you were today. Um, because obviously they can check that ahead of time now. It was a bit harder um, back in the day. In the US, however, um, I've read <laughs> that it is more common to sign the marriage papers away from the audience, so to speak, because it's a boring affair that no one wants to watch, I guess. However, most states do also require witnesses, but sometimes only one's required. Obviously, this comes out of these older traditions where situations happened and people kind of went, hang on a minute, I didn't sign that. What do you mean you didn't sign that? Well... It's my name, but I didn't sign it. Can't prove I signed it. So, I think just to kind of explain to our U.S. audience, so obviously, obviously, people know what kind of signing a marriage certificate as a witness means in the U.K. When it's done in the ceremony, it means that you kind of you there's a table up front, and you in the middle of the ceremony, you go around and you sit at the table and you fill it out and as both the witnesses and then the bride and groom. So the bride and groom sit there and they write their names. Stop and take a moment while you're sitting down to take photos of that happening. And the, your whole audience is watching that. And so in the U.S., that's not typically a thing that you do. You, As the reception is going on, um, normally someone goes and tries to find the witnesses and says, hey, can you sign this real quick? And it's just like this casual thing that you kind of hand to the to the See, witnesses that to do. sound that sounds proper dodgy to me <laughs> i don't think so but i i do think it was funny when i first heard that that's what you have to do in the uk i was like you're just gonna sit in the middle of your like sit down in the middle of your ceremony after you've walked down the aisle and and sign this thing and so you know i i found it odd but now that i kind of know the background of it it's it's interesting i mean that's the whole legal part yeah you know like in in the eyes of the law that's that's the only bit they care about yeah. So if you don't do that bit properly, you're not married in, in the eyes of the government. So I, I guess in that way, it, it makes sense to do that in front of people. I just think it's um, it would definitely maybe be seen as odd 
in the U.S. to do that when when normally you're you're standing up together at the the end of the aisle and to kind of break that up by sitting there and you know signing things is just not something that's normally done. So it's just yeah. Interesting. I mean, I mean, we we noted that weddings in the U.S. tend to be shorter than here in the U.K. Anyway, the actual wedding bit. I mean, all of it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like including the reception. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Um, whereas here they can be all day affairs. Oh yeah. Oh totally. In yeah. Ireland too. Like obviously Irish and and British traditions tend to be pretty similar in that way, but yeah, like they can literally be get married on the morning at ten o'clock and you still people would be there honestly drinking until midnight. Yeah. Yeah, and you can even invite extra guests into your later, later d- reception type thing. Oh, yeah, 100%. So yeah. You, you get guests that come to the church and, and see the, the ceremony. Um, then those guests will all come with you to the reception. And they'll have the food. And then you can also invite evening-only guests who arrive just for the dancing and the drinking who sometimes get a buffet. Sometimes, if you fancy. So, yeah, just some random differences there <laughs> sorry if we went on a tangent but it's interesting well we think so anyway we think so anyways <laughs> so back to wedding traditions after the wedding many couples would have had a wedding breakfast which is kind of what jordan was talking about where you have a meal um after the wedding obviously in the morning ish time but because it was so early in the morning for the wedding the meal would have been earlier in the day than our nighttime receptions that happen today. So some of the foods that would have been including in the included in the uh, wedding breakfast would be bread, ham, eggs, drinking chocolate, and a wedding cake. I totally would have no problem with having breakfast at a wedding, so I'm down for this. We did have a wedding breakfast of sorts. Our wedding was in the morning, and we ate around lunchtime. I like things being earlier. It it makes makes sense to me so So, yeah so a brief note about the wedding breakfast is it's still called that today no matter what time of day that you have your first meal after the wedding it's basically you're breaking your fast but it's also it's your first meal as a married couple so it's your breakfast for the rest of your marriage um so it doesn't matter if you get married at 3 p.m and then you go and have your dinner at 5 p.m that is your wedding breakfast so the wedding cake was different from what is typical today. It would most resemble a fruit cake, which was made with alcohol, which allowed the cake to keep for a really long time. It could be covered with icing sugar, and then friends and family could take it home in pieces and have it later. So that's kind of like today. Sometimes we'll do that. Um, but I think fruit cake is more of a thing here in the UK than it is in the US. In the U.S., it can often be seen as kind of a gag gift that you give someone at Christmas. But here in the U.K., people people still make it and often will take like months beforehand, especially like during Christmas, to, to make it. It's really good. Um, I I think it's it's delicious, but I know that you've got some reservations no, in general. I, I think now that I've had a U.K. fruitcake, I think the stuff that's been manufactured in the U.S. is just... It's not really a fruitcake. Like, it, okay. it has a resembled taste to it, but there's so much kind of fake, yeah, fake manufactured type fruit in it. Okay. And it just doesn't taste the same. So I'm I'm redeeming myself. I, I'm okay with Okay, good. That's, no, that, that's, that is good. So you don't necessarily have to take months to make it. So typically people 
wood. You can make one in a couple of hours and you can eat it the next day. And I'm reliably informed, thanks ma'am, that the best way to do it is to soak the fruit overnight. Then you cook it the next day. And then over the next few months, you leave it. So the longer that you leave it, the better it is to eat. Um, you can make them months in advance, basically. So wait, you, you, make, you make the cake and you bake it and then leave it. Or you leave the dough. No, no, no. So, so, okay. So the fruit that goes into the cake, you'll soak that in your alcohol overnight. Okay. Um, so it soaks, obviously, up um, the goodness. And then you cook it the next day into the cake. So you bake the cake. Okay, yeah. Yep. And then over the next few months, you can leave it wrapped up. Um, and uh, the longer you leave it, the better, because it absorbs more flavor and stuff. Um, so what my mom said is that you turn it over and you poke holes in it. Right, so it's from the bottom, so you're not ruining the icing, um, and you you then spoon and like you know whatever alcohol or whatever it is that you're you're using over, and then you make it moist over time and stuff, and obviously the alcohol keeps it. Um, you you can use rum or sherry or like a cherry kirsch kind of thing, usually something along those lines, and so obviously the sugars in it make it um very sugary and and all that kind of stuff. Typically as well, um there'd be three tiers to a wedding cake because the the topmost and the smallest cake, which would be probably, you know, maybe the size of your hand, it would fit in, in a single hand, um, you would keep for the christening of your firstborn child. Interesting. Yeah. That's a long time. <laughs> so apparently one of the biggest deals surrounding weddings was making sure that the news was in the paper so that everyone knew about it. Even Jane Austen wrote about a wedding that she'd heard of and being disappointed by the fact that she hadn't seen it in the paper. She said, The latter writes me word that Miss Blackford is married, but I have never seen it in the papers, and one may as well be single if the wedding is not to be in print. So it is definitely good, it seems, that Lady Whistledown writes about Simon and Daphne's wedding, as it was a big deal in society that would have been talked about. So even though Lady Whistledown is a fictionalized version of a newspaper back then, we, we can tell that the paper and the kind of gossip that it provided was very important during the Regency era. They didn't have TV. Yeah. Well, there you, there you go. So they had uh, rumor mongers. I feel more it's that they did. I mean, TV's one thing. I feel it's more that they didn't have social media. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean... You know, you would still announce things in the newspaper for weddings and stuff. So, but but social media has just blown that up. So it's very different in the way we kind of receive our news nowadays. Even if you do like receive news about something in like a newspaper, a lot of times where you will see it is social media. So things have things have changed. So lastly, the honeymoon would also look different than it did today. When couples would sometimes go on a trip, they would often embark a week or so later rather than kind of right after the wedding, and, and they would first, uh, first go home. So sometimes even the sister of the bride would be invited to the honeymoon and to live with the couple for a period of time. It seems kind of odd to us today, uh, but for a lot of couples, they would have had very little conversation, so it would be awkward <laughs> for the newlyweds. So having someone familiar for the wife could be helpful for the journey and or the honeymoon. Not that way, but you get what I mean. <laughs> Why? I didn't mean it like that. I just Nobody like, was thinking <laughs> that. Okay, fine. Um, 
I don't want to think how awkward it would have been if Daphne took along Eloise to their honeymoon or their like first few weeks of marriage. Could you imagine? <laughs> that would have been so awkward. Ugh. Eloise would have been so snippy about the whole thing and Daphne and Simon would just be wanting time alone. I think in this instance, it is good that the two of them uh, have had so much time to get to know one another because at least they'd built up a small friendship and could, you know, kind of build on that, obviously. But it was clear that many couples barely knew each other on their wedding day. So kind of at having that familiar person, at least for the woman, was was helpful to kind of make her feel at home and make her feel like she wasn't so alone. Lady Violet once again has her mother's intuition senses tingling. She follows her daughter up to her bedroom and appears to be about to give the sex talk before Daphne's wedding night. Violet doesn't seem to want to tell Daphne anything because, you know, she just feels too awkward about it. And she tells her that it is natural. Um, but, you know, the conversation is very awkward. We don't really get anything more than that. Violet tells Daphne that the act of sex is performed in order to have children. Daphne worries that they will not be able to do the act if he cannot have children. Violet, like, shoes away her concerns and says that they'll be fine, they'll figure it out. And it's not the best sex education um, ever. <laughs> In fact, it's probably one of the worst, because Daphne still knows nothing. The carriage is ready for Daphne to be taken away with the Duke. Somehow, all of the guests in the reception have magically disappeared. Um, it could have been a time jump, we're not sure. She's just off now. Um, nobody's saying goodbye. <laughs> um, we didn't even address her leaving her own party. As she's leaving, she reconciles with Eloise, saying that she's certain that she will make her own way in the world. Daphne is the first to be married, and her family embrace um, as she heads off. In the carriage, the Duke tells her that they should reach the inn by nightfall. This is clearly not the wedding night that she was expecting. It doesn't seem like the two of them communicate the rest of the, uh, the way. And it's very awkward and probably very long and very boring. Going like two miles an hour in a silent carriage with no entertainment. Yeah. They arrive at the inn, which, you know, compared to modern hotel rooms is quite big, but would be and would be more space than a lot of people would have had in this situation. But it is nothing compared to the grand houses and bedrooms that we've seen this whole season. It's quite a downgrade for a wedding night. The Duke has gotten them separate rooms, however, an indication that he's still not dropped their ruse. By the way, ah, that carriage ride. I was looking it up, um, the time that it would take to get anywhere in a carriage like this, and the average is about 10 to 15 miles per hour. But of course, horses need to rest during that time. So you have to account for that. So the most you could be going is about 20 miles in an eight-hour day. So we're talking like, not very far for a really long um, portion of time. But I've kind of talked about this before. It's my dream to take a long carriage ride in a closed carriage. We had a carriage at our wedding, and that was super fun. My mom arranged it, and it was really special, and it was one of, one of my favorite parts of our wedding. But it did take us like a full hour to go a couple of miles, which for us was lovely because we were just like taking in the scenery we just had our wedding and our reception and we were just kind of like having fun and connecting at, at the end of the wedding which was nice we we ate some some of our cake in the in the carriage which was fun <laughs> but I I feel like if you're trying to go somewhere just down the road it could take you hours in the freezing cold and I bet it wouldn't be as as fun <laughs> 
But for just experiment's sake, I would love to ride in one of those like closed carriages for about an hour with a book in hand and see how I feel about it and how long it takes us and see whether or not I get like super bored or if I enjoy it. I, I just want to like pretend I'm Jane Eyre or something and I'm headed to Thornfield Hall for the first time. Mm. So I think interesting thing to, to comment on about, you know, Violet and the, the sex ed talk, because in most of the shows or stories, you just skip over it. Just elide that part and like, it doesn't matter whether or not she has a hasn't had a talk, but they intentionally kind of put it in, and they they're like they're intentionally making sure that Daphne is as unprepared as possible. Yeah. Um. To make to make like this carriage ride like ratchet up the tension. Um. You'll have to tell me if it's in the book. Um. After I, you've. I mean, clearly. It ended up being fine for her wedding night, but it still was like no, I know, but I'm I'm just saying nerve wracking. Like, it's an course. interesting choice, yeah, to kind of go. All right, we're gonna have this talk between the mother and the daughter, but it's gonna be awkward, and she's not actually gonna say anything. Um, I just think it's really interesting. Yeah. So, um, I think you know, in terms of the carriage thing, that's why in a lot of these kinds of shows and films and stuff, like the guy just gets on a horse and rides off because mm. I'm pretty sure it's a lot faster presumably the horse can ride for longer when yeah. they aren't pu pulling a huge wooden carriage behind them yeah um but that 20 miles in an eight hour day is a little weird to me because that's roughly how far someone who's fit is supposed to be able to walk in eight hours really yes have you, you have you heard of the unit a league before no like oh well we can go eight leagues today no? No. All right, okay. So that that is a unit of measurement that is roughly three miles long. Okay. Because a league is or was rather, it's not used anymore. The is the rough distance that somebody could walk in an hour. So you can travel if you traveled for eight hours, you'd go eight leagues, which would be twenty four miles, roughly. So, so yeah, it's 20 miles in an eight-hour day is what most, like, average-to-fit people would be able to do. You might ache at the end of it if me and you tried to do it. <laughs> but, um, but no, like, it's, it's possible. So, the fact that a, a carriage is, like, the same distance in a day, it's very strange. I don't know. I mean, maybe I did wrong on the maths on that. But I think it, it could be very similar. I, I guess in terms of this, like, if you were having to go for several days or like in Daphne's case, she's taking a bunch of her luggage. She can't carry that for eight hours while she's walking. Oh, so no, 100 percent. Like yeah. it, it makes sense to use a carriage. But no, I think b just because horses need to rest and they can't be running constantly. So maybe there's times where they they're going a lot faster and you can make up some speed. But then other times the horses need to just walk. And so you're going at like a turtle's pace. So hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so in their separate rooms, the two pace, unsure of what to do. Finally, Simon and Daphne both decide to show up at the other one's door, but Simon gets there first. He tells her that they should go down to dinner, and she does not want to go to dinner. She wants to do the activity that her mother has been telling her about. I mean, I'd be starving by now. Kayla would be starving by <laughs> now. 
be starving by now. We'd both be focused on the food. Let's be honest. I mean, we were. <laughs> we were sat in that hotel room with the cake and we went, ah, oh, there's not enough cake. Um, so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> she's clearly wanting a different kind of snack. But, you know, she can do you. Or That's okay. <laughs> moving on. Do him. <laughs> oh um, so she tells him that the two haven't spoken for three days and it's been hard. He says he thought that she wanted her space. Nothing changes over time, apparently. <laughs> they both believed that they were the one to trap the other one in the marriage. He thinks that she wants nothing uh, to do with him and that she wanted a love match and didn't get it with him. And uh, the way that she looks at him and... Uh... What? I feel like you wrote this for you. I probably did, but it's entertaining watching <laughs> you try. Um, so the note says the way that she looks at him and how hot he is and he's worried that she doesn't want him is he really this blind so Kayla wrote this one for herself and uh, I took it uh, which was silly of me Simon tells her everything he's told the queen is true he cannot stop thinking of her he is obsessed she doesn't get it how does she not get it? She doesn't seem dumb, but she is being dumb. <laughs> he says those now famous lines, I burn for you. I burn for you. She says she also burns for him. And we're off to the races. Bodices rip, laces come undone, boots come off. We see a bare bottom. You get the deal. At the end, Daphne looks up to the ceiling and says, I feel wonderful. So we're not going to go into the sex stuff. Um... You guys watched it, you know, there's no reason to recap that. And my mother would kill us. Um, but I do think that this is interesting that we're just halfway through the show and our main characters are already married. Typically in Regency romances, uh, the end goal is that the main characters aren't married until the end of the story. Happens in, in a lot of romances. So I do feel like that was unique in the book, The Duke and I, and then also in the show. I was very interested in the fact that they were already putting the couple together so fast and what they were going to do with those characters for four more episodes. We shall see later what they do with those characters. But I just found it interesting that they're already together and now we have to watch them kind of navigate marriage. It's like us continuing on a fairy tale such as Cinderella. We're given a look into how she deals with her marriage, which can't always be perfect. There's always got to be some sort of conflict. Um, I can't believe it took the two of them so long. They've both been so blind about their feelings with each other at this point. They do both act like they yearn for each other and are passive aggressive with each other at the same time. Classic signs of people who are into each other. <laughs> also, I just wanted to say the room at the inn is big and it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But all of those shots in the mansions, these huge gorgeous rooms... And then this first, this girl's first time is in this dark hotel room. Do you really? Are you serious? Do you really think she's looking around at the decor, going, "Oh, this isn't quite up to one's no, but taste." Just, just, I'm sorry, but just for I would be like, you know, I am used to the finer thing. If I was her, I'd be like, I'm used to the finer things in life, and you bring me here, and then you expect. She has the finest thing in oh. life right now. Oh, please, <laughs> we are not going into that, but. 
she clearly wasn't expecting to go to this inn. We can tell. And neither were we, to, to be honest. I was like, where where are you taking us here? <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't bad. It was just compared to the rest of the places that we've been this entire show. And then it had to be that night that we're in this old dark inn. It's just it's just some somewhat tragic. But although you're right, she doesn't seem to mind. Obviously. So, <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't really have anything else to add to that. And yeah, you don't have nothing to add to uh, to that last uh, scene there? No. Okay. So that's the end of episode five. We're getting into uh, some steamy stuff, and it's a bit, bit too much. <laughs> I feel like we should expect this based on Shonda Rhimes' other shows like Grey's Anatomy where you get a bunch of people just having fun in the hospital all the time. But this definitely seems a bit more graphic. I had initially suggested that we watch it on Christmas Day as a family with my mom and my sister and my dad and my brother-in-law over Skype, all of us. And I'm so glad we didn't do that. I don't think that this is a show at all for family viewing i think some of it's probably not good for all viewing but um i keep hearing stories in the news where people have had mishaps with family or friends watching bridgerton ashton kutcher and mila kunas um who are married had a weird thing where he had no idea that she was what she was watching in the middle of the night and it caused a lot of confusion (laughs) and then nicola coughlin we're going to figure out her day (laughs) who plays Penelope in the Bridgerton series, says she makes sure to fast forward the sex scenes when she watches it with her mom, which I think is is wise. <laughs> and it's just not something that's comfortable to watch, is it? But I am here to help. I did post on Facebook, on our Facebook group, a post that someone made of all the sex scenes that you can fast forward while you're watching with your family, which I thought was really funny. So definitely do join our group if you haven't yet. We love some Bridgerton memes and funny videos. There are so many fun memes going around and we'd love for you to share stuff that you found. Our group is facebook.com slash groups slash Regency Rumors. And if you correct me, one more time is going to be your last You are very silly to think that I would correct you all of the time. I mean, it's not like you say it wrong or anything. And really, it's not only you that spells it wrong. Uh, I mean, differently. (laughs) I hope I hope you got the the very subtle. I did get it. Dad jokes, but I did get it. (laughs) (laughs) So. Thank you, dear listener for tuning into this episode of Regency Rumors. And until next time, goodbye. You want to go get some food? I keep thinking about cake. You want to make me a cake? I'm not going to make you a cake. But I'm hungry. We just talked about being hungry. It's ten to one in the morning. I'm very hungry. I love you so much. You make me food. I'm not going to make you a cake.